0: By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter.
1: Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. In a famous 1991 article for Commentary magazine, scholar Ruth Weiss described anti-Semitism as the most durable and successful ideology of the 20th century. Unfortunately, it's doing pretty well in the 21st century, too. And in a new book titled, How to Fight Anti-Semitism, New York Times writer Barry Weiss describes how Jews now are under attack from three different varieties of this ancient hatred, with strains originating in the far right, the far left, and among militant Muslims. This week, I traveled to New York City, where I spoke to Barry about her new book, Over Lunch at a Midtown Restaurant. So if you sometimes hear what sounds like waiters delivering food and clearing dishes in the background, well, that's exactly what you're hearing. That said, please enjoy these excerpts from my conversation with New York Times writer Barry Weiss, author of the newly published book, How to Fight Anti-Semitism. In your book, you talk about applying something called the KIPA or the Magandavid test to determine if you're in an anti-Semitic environment. Can you tell listeners what that test means?
0: Sure. What that test means is do you feel safe walking around your neighborhood or a given environment with a sign of your visible Jewishness. So a kippah, a yarmulke, or or a magendavid, a Jewish star around your neck. And it's clear that there are just certain places in the world right now, in 2019, where that's not the case. Everyone I know who's a religious Jew who wears a kippah, when they go to Paris and they walk around certain neighborhoods, they put a baseball hat over their head. And just to see, you know, what's been going on in the past few weeks, certainly over the past year, but but really, really, it's it seemed to have ramped up over the past few weeks in Brooklyn. The last week of August, there were three violent attacks on Haredi Jews.
1: So Haredi meaning ultra orthodox literally trembling before God
0: yes but just think of it as you know people that look like they were ripped out of the 18th century Europe you know very very they're the Jews of the Jews the right. very obviously Jewish you know I, I know parents in Brooklyn whose children wear a kippah and they're a bit nervous now in a way that they just simply weren't three or four years ago. But is
1: there a basis for that worry here in North America? The stories you have in the book about Europe, obviously, uh, it is legitimately frightening. There have been a few incidents here in North America. Are you worried that you will stir up fears of Jews being attacked, even though from a statistical point of view, it's gotta be one of the safest places and the safest eras for Jews at any point in Jewish history in North America.
0: There's no question about that. As I write in the book, we're the luckiest diaspora in Jewish history for, for a number of reasons which I can go into. That is still true, despite what happened in my home community in Pittsburgh and what happened six months later in Poway the the sheen of the you know the golden of medina as my grandparents generation called america literally the golden land might have worn off a tiny bit but the reason that i'm writing this book and sort of sounding the alarm is cuz i believe that things here aren't <laughs> that bad yet and we have a chance to sort of put the genie back in the bottle
1: so i'm from a jewish background myself and i'll admit that i've been complacent about anti-Semitism in recent years. Reading reading your book may, maybe has changed that somewhat. I have a, a strong memory of the financial crisis mm-hmm. in, I guess, it's 2008, uh, more than a decade ago. It was such a perfect opportunity for anti-Semites to revive uh, financial conspiracy theories about the Jews. And yet, you know, at the time, I, I remember thinking and being gratified by the fact that there was very little anti-Semitism arising from what happened and this was exactly the sort of economic cataclysm that historically especially in the 19th century was the very foundation of anti-jewish conspiracism
0: i agree but i feel like we're living in the after effects of that now like we're sort of reaping the whirlwind of that now when you have populism rising on the far left and the far right that basically says You know, there's this group of people, the globalists, the elitists, the bankers, and they're conspiring against the working man. And you have people like Tucker Carlson saying that, and you have people like Donald Trump saying that. And there's a reason that people who are already inclined to the anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, that they hear that language and they hear Jew, Jew, Jew. Now, I share you're feeling that it could have been cataclysmic then, it wasn't, but I feel like we're still sort of still living in the aftermath of that, and then it's actually beginning to rise more now, and that's very connected to what happened in 2008.
1: What makes this historical period so interesting?
0: The one we're living in?
1: The one we're living in now, in 2019 for future listeners, is the fact that anti-Semitism is coming from different sources and the organization of your book reflects that. You have a large section on the left, you have a large section on the right, and you have a large section on militant Islam, which doesn't fall neatly into either left or right. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about how theories of intersectionality and privilege Mm -hmm. overlap with traditional anti-Semitism because, in the United States at least, and certainly in Canada, statistically speaking, Jews are fairly privileged, if we're going to use that word. Uh, And, of course, that taps into the idea that they should feel somewhat guilty, according to conventional intersectional analysis, because they have all this privilege and people of color don't. Although, as you emphasize in the book, many Jews are people of color. Could you explain, in in, in a nutshell, how this fixation on intersectionality is affecting the way people think? about Judaism primarily on campuses, which is where intersectionality is taught.
0: Yes. Can I start with talking about the far right for a minute because it kind of mirrors it. Sure. So what the far right is saying is that Jews are in a sense, or Ashkenazi Jews, white looking, white passing Jews, are in a sense like the greatest trick the devil has ever played. Why? Because they appear to be white. They can pass as white. But in fact, they are loyal to brown people and black people, immigrants and Muslims who white supremacists believe are sort of sullying their vision of a pure blood and soil white Christian America, which is, of course, a lie about what America is. So in that sense, whiteness is very, very important to the anti-Semitism of the far right. Now On the far left, you have something different. You have the increasingly the forcible conversion of Jews into white oppressors. And how does that work? because what intersectionality does in practice is that it sort of sets up this new caste system in which the people who are the most victimized sit at the top of that caste system, and the people with the most privilege are at the bottom. And in that crude theory of the world and of, it's like a tribal mentality, the Jews sit basically just at the bottom, maybe right above white, Christian, cisgendered males. The reason that this is so, so... I hate to use the word problematic, but problematic is that it blinds people to the threat against Jews. Because how can they be threatened if they're so privileged and successful? I think most people just sort of swimming in progressive waters, would be shocked to learn that in 2018, there were four times as many hate crimes against Jews than against blacks in New York City. Since 1995, according to the FBI, year to year, the most anti-religious hate crimes were against Jews and not against another group. And what it does is that it forces this kind of blindness. So when anti-Semitism rears its head from the far right, as it did in Pittsburgh, progressives very clearly can see that as a threat because the perpetrator is a neo-Nazi. But when the perpetrator, as they've been in Brooklyn, are you know is a young black male, it's much more complicated because how can someone who we've put into the category of victim also be a victimizer? Does that make sense?
1: It makes perfect sense, and it sort of reminds me a little bit of how the left reacted to 9-11. Because here you had America, the great colonial victimizer, being victimized by terrorism that originated in areas of the world that had been colonized and it caused a huge ideological disruption, which yeah. in, some, in some cases led to conspiracism, because the only way people could get their head around what happened on 9-11 was to somehow shoehorn it into existing theories of America, which meant you know, it was an inside job. A master- or, was,
0: or, or, or just, you know, the, the softer version of that is that it was chickens coming home to roost.
1: Sure. Yeah, it was a blowback, I think was the term. But 9-11 had an interesting effect on the politics of Judaism in the United States, because... As you say in the book, there's this historic conspiracism surrounding Jews where they are somehow this malicious, parasitical element. That's Mm -hmm. the way anti-Semites would cast them. And yet after 9-11, that changed, uh, in the United States at least, because since the Jews had this long history of confronting terrorism in the Middle East, Mm -hmm. there was this period when Jews were turned into sort of super patriots, within Republican, primarily Republican political mythology, hmm. and, and in fact you had a lot of uh, Jews who, who served in, in George W. Bush's administration. Do you think that had any lasting impact on the way we think about anti-Semitism in the West?
0: One positive thing that I think came out of 9-11, or at least the immediate aftermath of it, was that American Jews who had been paying so much attention to Israel's fight against radical Islam, not least during the second Intifada, were sort of like, see, this is what we were talking about. And there was a sense of solidarity in a sense that we were sort of fighting for, for basic values that Israel was representative of in the Middle East. The ugly part that very much came out of that period was a sense that the Jewish neocons took us into war we still hear that. And, and that, frankly, become, became quite mainstream in books like, you know, Walton Mearsheimer's The Israel Lobby. And then it went from the margins into the mainstream, as so many of these ideas do.
1: And the idea of, of Jews dragging nations into war for their own profit is a theme that exists within the darkest parts of anti-Semitic literature, uh, including the protocols. Which, um, by
0: the way, just, I mean, to give to give you a sense of how mainstream these things have become, someone sent me a picture the other day of a doorman like on the Upper West Side, just young guy reading the Protocols of the Elders of Zion in
1: um, yeah, Manhattan. That sh- I think that should come up in his job review. Yeah. About-
0: <laughs> but this is the, one of the interesting things about writing this book is that I'm like the front lines of people's stories. And so I might have a somewhat distorted idea of how bad it is because I'm like who people write to and come to. And,
1: and just to be fair to this doorman, when I was writing my own book about conspiracy theories. You were walking
0: around reading Protocols
1: too. (laughs) I I studied that closely but I I read Mein Kampf because Mm -hmm. Mein Kampf is, among other horrible things, a deeply conspiratorial book. Uh, I remember I was on a beach in Maine reading it and yeah, if someone had passed me, they would think, oh my God, there's this, <laughs> this anti- <laughs> anti-Semitic middle-aged guy on the beach. So we don't know what that doorman was thinking. I,
0: You're right, we don't. He might also be writing a book about the yes, history of conspiracies thinking, right. somehow I doubt it, okay. but it's possible.
1: We have to right? find this doorman and get him canceled.
0: No, th- <laughs> so this is the thing. I would never do that. Right. What I would want to do is find out exactly the address and so I can bring him bring him some better reading material.
1: That's right. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about the place of Muslims, which I know it's not the focus for your book. But do you think this idea, Jews as this conspiratorial, parasitic element within a larger society, do you think Muslims have been getting a lot of that treatment in the last couple of years? Uh, Certainly, I know a lot lot of conservatives, they say things about Muslims that I sometimes say to them, if somebody said that about Jews, you would think they were anti-Semites.
0: I completely agree. But it's also, I mean, certainly in this country, Hispanics. I mean, two nights ago, the president was at a campaign rally. And he said, do you like America more? Or do you like Hispanics more? I mean, it's the demonization of a lot of these groups. But sorry to go back to Muslims.
1: So he, he actually asked that question? I
0: believe he did. I okay. can pull it up.
1: All right. Yeah. Wow. It was
0: really... It, it's like people are so numb at this point to the things that he says that it almost went unremarked. Because
1: you can only like one thing. Right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Okay.
0: I, I, I wrote this book without the chapter on radical Islam at first and sort of thought that I could avoid it. And one of the reasons I wanted to avoid it is because I do not want in any way to contribute to the bigotry and xenophobia that is already directed against another religious minority population. And I'm just very aware of the way that arguments that expose bigotry in that community can then be utilized as a way to demonize them further. Yeah, and I think we need to be very sympathetic to that, but also be unsparing in talking honestly about what happens, for example, just looking to Europe, when a liberal population absorbs an enormous number of people coming from places where homophobia, misogyny, and anti-Semitism are just normative. And you see sort of the after effects of that, in lots of different ways right now. This is, to me, this was like an incredibly tragic example. You think about someone who's fleeing from Dara, Syria, and what they are escaping, and the hell that they are running from, hell that our ancestors knew very intimately. Three months ago, I believe, it might have been longer by now, I've sort of lost track of time in writing this book and getting it out, there was a young man, a refugee from Dara, Syria, who was arrested in Pittsburgh, I think he's 20 years old, because he was trying to burn down a church. So it's just the really, really complicated reality of people that are fleeing for a better life can also bring with them some ideas that are, are dangerous to liberal democracy.
1: We've reached the midpoint in this Quillette podcast, which we will resume very shortly. But first, a short message from our commercial supporters at BetterHelp, an online counseling service that helps people become happier and more productive. By logging on at BetterHelp, you can connect with your professional licensed counselor in a safe and private online environment according to your own pace and schedule, using secure video or phone sessions, as well as online chat and text. Some of the specialties of BetterHelp counselors include depression, anger, stress, anxiety, relationship problems, sleep trouble, and trauma. BetterHelp uses a network of 3,000 licensed therapists across all 50 U.S. states, and you can switch therapists at no charge to make sure you find the right fit. Financial aid is available for those who qualify. And of course, anything you share with the professionals at BetterHelp is strictly confidential. Quillette podcast listeners get 10% off their first month's service by using the discount code QUILLETTE. If you'd like to know more, please go to betterhelp.com slash quillette. That's betterhelp.com slash Quillette. And now back to our podcast. Let's talk a little bit about New York. Not necessarily. Love it. You love <laughs> New York, right? We're here in Midtown, but let's talk about New York State. A couple of years ago, this American Life, NPR show, did this what I thought was a very brave show about a community in New York State where you had these old time residents. Who, they were in conflict with a large and growing segment of ultra-orthodox Jews, who basically had created and a,
0: steddle, a ghetto. It
1: was a parallel civic society: their own schools and their own way of looking at property management and their own social structures. And the way the producers did it,
0: I didn't. I didn't hear this, but keep telling me. I
1: think it sounds like you know the story, uh, and it sounds like, by the way, this story. Has well, it's to, still unfolding. It's unfolding there, and it's unfolding in Brooklyn. It was an interesting story to do because every part of the story made the producers vulnerable to charges of anti-Semitism. Mm. Because they were interviewing local townspeople who were saying, hey, look, this used to be this kind of community, but everything's changed. And But I remember listening to the story, you know, I'm Jewish. I was actually, like, sympathetic to the people who were complaining about the way the town was being changed. Mm-hmm. Not everything was being done in a democratic way. And some of these accusations of sort of, like, clannishness and parochialism, they sort of rang true to me. Where are the lines when it comes to reporting on the interactions between very tight-knit, ultra-Orthodox religious communities in New York State and the larger society? Should we be free to give voice to the complaints of people who see these communities expanding, sometimes at their expense?
0: It's very difficult. My test is always, is this minority being talked about in a way that we would talk about another minority? Parochial, clannish, backward. That's, to me, those words are dangerous.
1: Except, well, yeah, but I'm going to push back because the whole idea of certain sex within ultra-Orthodox Judaism is inherently backward-looking. They're, yes, tr- they're they trying are. to recreate shtetl life from, you know, the 18th century in Eastern Europe. Is it okay to call that out?
0: I haven't listened to the podcast, so I don't want to comment on it. What I will say is that just going back to the fact that there's been this rash of violent anti-Semitic attacks and they have not made the news in any way attacks on the Jews of the Jews, attacks on people that we perceive as backward and clannish and parochial and not of this time. No one's talking about that. Tablet ran an excellent piece just called Everybody Knows. But just imagine that in one week of August in Brooklyn, there were violent attacks against a minority. What would the reaction be from the mayor and the governor? They've done nothing. They've done nothing. And the fact that we have a mayor who's not going to the streets of Crown Heights and saying, I'm going to wear a kippa in solidarity with these people, to me is, as we say in Yiddish, a shanda.
1: May I say that we're doing a very bad job of controlling the media, if this story hasn't gotten <laughs> exactly. like, longer legs. Let's talk about... I uh, do my best. <laughs> well, yeah, but we're only two people, right? <laughs> the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement against Israel. Often heard, heard of it. You've heard of it. It's it's mentioned, it's not a, a strong focus of your book, but you mentioned it in the book. It's, it's often just called BDS. We just ran a piece on it in Quillette, a piece by a University of California professor named Andy Lamey. His point was, look, conservatives talk a lot about how their free speech is being suppressed, but they have this blind spot when it comes to Palestinians. There have been measures on campus and even at the state level where they're trying to ban BDS advocacy on the grounds that it's anti-Semitic. Is BDS inherently anti-Semitic?
0: It's a good question. I'll start by saying that for the average college student on an elite campus who hears about BDS and says, sure, I'm part of that. I don't think that they're an anti-Semite. What's going on there is that BDS has sort of been successfully marketed as being a plank of good progressivism. So if you want to be a good progressive these days as a young person, you need to believe in drug legalization, raising the minimum wage to $15. Oh, and by the way, you were for BDS. Do I think that the movement itself, BDS, in its origins and its intentions is anti-Semitic? Absolutely yes. I don't think there's a question about that. If you look at the statements of the founders of the movement, people like Omar Barghouti, who I really recommend people look up, not for nothing, he's speaking at the Labor Party conference, I think like next week.
1: In In, in the UK.
0: In the UK, yeah. exactly which makes a lot of sense for where the Labour Party is these days. Jeremy Corbyn. But what BDS insists on is not ending the occupation, which is what so many well-intentioned North American progressives want to believe it's about and wrongly describe it as. BDS is for the disappearance of any Jewish state between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea.
1: But should it be legitimate for someone to say start a BDS club on campus.
0: Yes, just as maybe it should be legitimate in a purely free speech world for someone to start an anti-gay club on a college campus. Uh, uh, But uh, one of those things would be roundly condemned as wrong and immoral, even though people have the free speech right to do it. And one of them absolutely would not. And I think that that speaks to the incredible blind spot and the lie that people are telling themselves about what this movement seeks to to support the abolition of that state which has the largest Jewish community in the world and the largest Jewish community of color in the world. More than half of Israelis are of Mizrahi, North African or, or, and or, or Middle or Eastern or descent.
1: Sephardic Jews as they're known. Yeah, Mizrahi. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, I don't understand how that's not anti-Semitic because what, what do people imagine would happen if the state is abolished? Do they not think that there would be another genocide. I I, I just I don't get it. Reality of life in the Middle East is very different than the reality here. It is what happened to Jamal Khashoggi in that Saudi embassy. If you want to look at what happens to minorities in the Middle East without protection, look at what's happened to the Yazidis, the Kurds, the Zoroastrians, and frankly, the Christians. Including
1: about, including the Christians of the West Bank, many of whom now live in Michigan because of the discrimination they faced in the oh, West of Bank. Of
0: course. Yeah. And you know, I, I think it's hilarious when people call this pinkwashing and, and they, they can call it what they want. The reality is there is one place in the Middle East where I can walk down the street making out with my girlfriend wearing a tank top and that place is Israel and like the reality of that is just plain and people that want to pretend that that is somehow like propaganda no, that's reality you know, anyway I could go on and on and on about this the other the other after effect of BDS that I think it's important to put, point out is that you know Opponents of BDS like to say BDS is not actually successful because it hasn't actually passed in in most college campuses because it's even if it passes in the student government, it's shut down by the administration. It's
1: largely symbolic.
0: Right. But what it does is that it effectively makes anyone who stands up for Israel or identifies as a Zionist, it smears them as being immoral and racist. And so it actually functionally makes the safe space for where anti-Semitism can flourish that much larger. And it does this constantly. There there are stories of Israelis, you know, left-wing Israelis who have been kicked off of journals simply by being Israeli. People disinvited from, you know, book events and symphonies and I can go on and on and on. But the people that it actually affects are normal, normal Jews. It doesn't actually affect Israeli policy.
1: That's interesting. That is an argument you hear often. They say, well, BDS has been a failure. You know, the Israeli GDP grew by such and such a percentage. But that's not the measure of it.
0: And it's also been successful in the sense that we now have several members of Congress who proudly support the BDS movement. That Uh, is a success.
1: And, 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 you know, it should be said, were uh, were banned from entering Israeli territory, which I thought was wrong.
0: I uh, agree. I yeah. wrote a column about it. But, you know, there's two scandals in that story. One is that they were banned from visiting Israel. And I've now written two columns about how ridiculous that policy is, and that it, it projects an unbelievable sense of weakness on the part of Israel to, to do that. But the second scandal that didn't make headlines in that story was that the group that was sponsoring Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib's trip
1: Those are the two Congress Yeah, sorry, those are the two
0: Congresswomen um, was a group called Miftah the group has glorified suicide bombers and it has published the medieval blood libel, like not a dressed up version. It has published things saying the blood of Christian babies is required to make Jewish matzah for Passover. Which is
1: not true. (laughs) It is totally, no, it's, you know what? It's, uh, It's rare that you hear that like old school blood libel.
0: But the fact that that was the case and it didn't become a mainstream story, imagine if a Republican member of Congress went to Norway or Sweden and met with a neo-Nazi group. Imagine what the coverage of that would be. I
1: will admit that I had never heard that story until you just told me it right now.
0: Yeah. Well, most people hadn't until I was on CNN for 45 seconds and managed to sandwich it in. Then to his credit, Jake Tapper picked up on it. But I think that was the only mainstream coverage that that got. I just find that to be unbelievable.
1: So I'm going to ask you one last question because I've kept you for too long. You're in this interesting position because you're plainly somebody who's raising awareness about anti-Semitism. You're plainly proud of being a Jew. You're supportive of of Israel, yet at the same time, you're also somebody who is known as a principal defender of free speech and free intellectual inquiry. And so as I'm reading your book and talking to you, there is this slight tension because we live in an age when, you know, when someone calls out hate or bigotry or anti-Semitism of any kind, you just kind of naturally expect them to also say, that's why we have to censor this, that you expect it's going to be a campaign of censorship. That's not quite what you advocate. In the last chapter, the exhortations you provide are largely about what we can do as Jews. Did you consciously have to balance these two hats you wear, one as being some, someone raising awareness about anti-Semitism, the other as being a defender of, of, of free speech and debate?
0: No, it wasn't conscious because that those represent my just deeply held values, which is to say, I think the best way to convince people is with better ideas and more speech. And one of the reasons that I wrote this book and I feel so strongly about stopping the spread of this virus is because is obviously because i'm a jew and i care about the future of the jewish people but trust me we've survived worse than this and we are the ever dying ever living people and we will survive this we're heroes what i care what i care more about is not more about what i really really care about and i think is sort of lost is the other victim of anti-semitism which is the surrounding culture i love this country And I love the values that at its best it stands for. And those are the values that happen to be deeply simpatico with Jewish ones. Hatred of tyrants, love of liberty and freedom, the belief that all people are created equal. And I think that to stand up for those values is to stand up for American ones too and to stand up for the future and thriving of this country.
1: Mary Weiss, thank you so much for being on the Quillette podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me.